Hello, welcome back. This is Father John Arnold, and this is Oro Valley Catholic. Do you ever pay much attention to some of the weird stuff in the Bible? How about the second reading for the first Sunday of Lent in year B? Listen to this from 1 Peter. Christ suffered for sins once, the righteous for the sake of the unrighteous, that he might lead you to God. So far, so good. Put to death in the flesh, he was brought to life in the spirit. Okay. In it, he also went to preach to the spirits in prison. What? Who had once been disobedient. What's that about? While God patiently waited in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few persons, eight in all, were saved through water. This prefigured baptism, which saves you now. It's not a removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. That's the end of 1 Peter. Want to talk about the prisoners in, in, in uh, the spirits in prison? That's an interesting thing. This week on Oro Valley Catholic. So what does it mean that 1 Peter, a letter from Peter, says that Jesus preached to the souls in prison? And I'm going to come back to this other thing, too, because in 1 Peter chapter 4, in verse 6, and that would be the chapter after the chapter that the reading from this Sunday's 1 Peter is taken, it said that also, for this is why the gospel was preached even to the dead, that though condemned in the flesh in human estimation, they might live in the spirit in the estimation of God. This is the biblical part, the biblical story where in the three days that Jesus is in the grave, that he actually goes and preaches to the dead. Uh, And that'll be reflected in the creeds that I'll talk about at the end of this section. I just think it's one of those things for Catholics to think about what happens when you die and why it is we understand that we're not beyond the power of God when we die. And even when we talk about babies that are unbaptized or aborted, or when we talk about people from the past or who is saved, all of that kind of thing, well, wow, Jesus went and preached to people that weren't even alive when he came, according to 1 Peter. And so let me go back over 1 Peter chapter 3, the part where the reading came from briefly, and then let's talk about how this has kind of come down to us through a Christian, through a specifically Catholic tradition. And so it says that he preached to the souls in prison, um, spirits at the time of Noah, through eight were saved um, through uh, being taken into the ark. And when 1 Peter refers to the eight that's saved, just think of what, if you go back and read Genesis, the book of Genesis about Noah, it'll say Noah had three sons um, and that he and his three sons, along with their wives, went into the ark because they go in two by two. Everyone remembers that about the ark. But if you do your math right, Um, What it means is eight people were in the ark, and that is what 1 Peter is referring to, that eight were saved. And that is why even today in our baptismal rite, when we baptize an adult or a child, we always talk about the story of Noah. 
the idea that God saves us through water is a scriptural idea, and that the reference to Noah as something prefiguring Christian baptism, the story of Noah and the eight that were saved, um, is something that comes right out of 1 Peter, so it's a very scriptural thing. But how Catholics have understood it, the descent into the dead, has been different over time. And so I kind of want to go through it because part of 1 Peter is like what you would understand from basic catechesis. And then how Christians have talked about it in like three basic ways. So uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 starts out, Christ died for our sins. You're on board with that. It corresponds to he now saves you through baptism. Well, that baptism is an experience of Christ's death, so you might experience his resurrection. I was in a an ecumenical, an interdenominational, if you will, or various communities. Catholics were there and Christians were there. And a lady who was a Baptist said that's what Baptists believe. So this is basic Christian belief about baptism. Um, but that the key there is the resurrection of the dead and his ascension into the right hand of God. But that leaves open the question of, okay, he's dead for three days. What happens when you die? So this is the first idea as Christian preachers dealt with this, especially I understand Clement of Alexandria in his commentary on John's, on John's gospel. Christ's soul his spirit went to the realm of the dead. And remember, his spirit, Jesus' spirit, is different from our spirit. His spirit is uncreated. Our spirits are all created, created by the spirit of God. We share in the spiritual nature of God. We do not share in his uncreated nature. Uh, so we are created beings like the angels and the devils, but only God is uncreated. And that's always the mystery of the incarnation at the beginning of the gospel and the end of the gospel. How can uncreated spirit that has no beginning and no end actually experience death? Um, and I would just say that in Christianity, not all questions can be answered um, where everybody is happy with the answer. Partly, we're just looking at a mystery. But for the first option, according to Clement of Alexandria, uh, explains the gospel about being preached even to the dead. Um, that means he went down into Sheol. And I know you, you probably remember that Sheol is the Jewish version, the Israelite version of Hades. All the Mediterranean religions have similar ideas, but the people of Israel develop them very differently than the pagans develop them. Um, for the pagans, if you have an experience of going to Hades, and it's called Hades because there's a Greek god, Hades, that guards the dead. That is, you can't get out because he won't let you get out. Um, that's why it's called Hades. In Northern Europe, the goddess who had the same role that Hades had in guarding the underworld is named Hell, H-E-L. That's where we get the idea of hell from because that word does not appear in Hebrew or Greek. Um, Jesus always referred to the place of damnation as Gehenna, which is the trash dump uh, on a in a valley next to across the Mount Zion from where the Kidron Valley is. Um, but that the idea that when you go into Hades, the ancient idea of Hades, and even the Nordic idea of hell, 
was that all the dead are there. There is a place that is a place of punishment, Tartarus in the Greeks. Um, but the rest is just like this really crummy, de-enervated life where Achilles, when Odysseus visits him in the Odyssey, says, one day of life is, in, is better than eternity in Hades. And, it, you know, even if you look at the Old Testament, 2 Samuel, uh, after Samuel dies and Saul is about, be, about to be deposed as king, he wants to get help from Samuel. Is there a way out of this predicament where God has yanked the crown from him? And so Saul has forbidden necromancy, that is, working with conversation of the dead, you know, like seances, modern seances are forbidden in, um, in the Old Testament. And I would say for Christians, because you never know what you're dealing with there. That's why you stay away from them, fellow Christians. But he goes to see the witch of Endor, who calls up Saul from the dead, just like Odysseus calls up the spirit of Achilles from the dead. And Saul comes up in his gray shroud, you know, as, because uh, there is an idea of ghosts in, in Israel. Remember when Jesus is walking on the water, they thought he was a ghost. Um, and then when he rises from the dead, he proves he's not a ghost because he eats and drinks with them. But that the idea is that this spiritual existence is in and out of the upper room. I can't explain that all to you. I can tell you this is the experience that people have of the world of dead, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. Um, the Japanese have ghost stories, and they're not even a theistic religion. And so the, the experience of the preternatural, and that's the world above nature, where it would be the, ro the world in, oh, what, medieval times would have been goblins and elves, but we would think of it as angels and uh, evil spirits, that there is a level to reality that is not natural. The supernatural world has one inhabitant, that's God, one God, three divine persons. And so when we get back to where exactly is Jesus going in those three days, it's the preternatural world. It's where the spirits of the dead are. And that's according to Clement of Alexandria, because um, it says he preached even to the dead. But some of the parts, like um, what the phrase in First Peter, made alive in the spirit, it's, you know, that, it sounds like a reference to the resurrection, and that the resurrection doesn't happen until the third day. And so does Jesus's spirit disconnect from his corpse in the grave? Um, that becomes a very medieval idea. St. Thomas Aquinas would, uh, and it's, pursued about the idea of the separated soul, that uh, we get a body at the resurrection. Some Protestants think you rise as soon as you're dead and you either go to heaven or hell. But for us in purgatory, one of our dominant beliefs has been about separated souls. And Thomas Aquinas used to wonder, well, if you don't have a body, are you really human? And so there have become a couple schools of thought over time about that. I've actually spent some time reading about this, and there's like really no way to resolve it. But that the idea is consciousness, the ability to participate in the love of God, and in, um, in purgatory, the idea of being cleansed through purgatory, through fire. These are all tied up with these ideas of the separated soul. So 
But is this what Clement of Alexandria is talking about? That's the case. It's not at all clear in 1 Peter that it's the same idea. Because remember, we're dealing with Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. We're not dealing with created spirits like you and me. So I just throw it out as that's one way of thinking about it. I have no idea to tell you whether it's true or not. Option two, Christ pre-incarnate preaching in the spirit through Noah. And so this is the idea that eternity exists outside of time. Just think of eternity as everything is present at the same time to God. And so St. Paul talks about it in, I think it's Romans, where he talks about the, the rock where, the, where Moses hit to get water. And St. Paul says that rock was Christ. Why? The material world through whom God operates. This is Christ. Um, uncreated, incarnate, in this case, as a rock that feeds the people water. So for we Christians following St. Paul, yes, Jesus uh, is in his body in heaven, but he is God. He um, binds himself to the incarnate body of Jesus of Nazareth, but is not bound by it because he is still God. Um, this is the mystery of the incarnation. So for Catholics, I would say, the idea that Jesus is present in this rock, Jesus is present in water and wine, he's God. And he doesn't give up being God by becoming a human being. Um, and that's another thing about the incarnation, about Catholics thinking about it. And it's why just one of the fun ways of thinking about Scripture without getting too dogmatic about things which are always going to be a mystery to us. But what um, Thomas Aquinas suspected was that preaching to the souls in prison in the days of Noah was a pre-incarnate activity of Christ through prophet, the prophet Noah. So I use the word incarnate a little uh, injudiciously. Incarnate means to take on flesh. So if Jesus is, op if Christ is the second person of the Trinity is operating through a rock, that's really not the incarnation because a rock's not flesh. When he operates through bread and wine, he makes it his flesh. So I guess that's about as deep as I can get into the incarnation when talking about the souls in prison. But for Thomas Aquinas, the idea that God was always getting the world ready uh, for this revelation of Christ. And so it, it kind of is the same idea of the spirit of Christ is active within the Old Testament prophets. He's there with the people in the desert. Uh, he's there in bread and wine. There is this consistency about how God operates. Um, but uh, in this context, what Jesus does pre-existent, does it really make sense in regard to Jesus in the grave? And so no matter what you say about all of these things, there's always another uh, aspect of it, another angle that uh, helps you from settling into something which might just be erroneous. So it's okay to think about these mysteries. We don't have to resolve everything today, right? But this idea of the pre-incarnate, that is before Jesus takes on the flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary, uh, that he was active in the world. Uh, I think that's consistent with the scriptures. It's supported by St. Augustine of Hippo and St. Thomas Aquinas. A lot smarter guys than I'm ever going to be. And so, so far we've had two options. Jesus 
descends into Sheol and he talks to the dead, Jesus is actually uh, in option two, active, preaching in the world before he's incarnate. And then option three, Christ's proclamation of victory to the fallen angels after his death. Because he's talking about the spirits in prison. So you have to make sense of that. So how about Lucifer and all his followers confined to hell? Though they do have some ability to influence and tempt in this world, still their spirits in hell. And so in this view, and it actually apparently has some support in some non-canonical ancient Jewish writings, first Enoch and Jubilees, which I think are both in existence before first Peter is written. And it could be that these were the source of Peter because the idea of the canon of scripture, like you and I understand the Bible when you go down and you buy it, uh, like from amazon.com or Trinity or wherever you end up buying it, that that Bible is the result of Christian faith. And it takes its final form in the Council of Trent after the Reformation. In the first four or six centuries of Christian history, there's an, <coughs> pardon me, an argument about what should go into that Bible. And so uh, Enoch and Jubilees may, for some Christians, especially in the first century, have been used and thought of as inspired um, works about the nature of reality. So it could be that that's the source of this thing about the spirits in prison. And so the idea of Jesus goes and he proclaims the redemption of all the world and humanity um, uh, and victory over Satan. Because why are we talking about it? Because today the story in the Gospels about um, Jesus being tempted in the desert. We're going to go to that in the final section of Oro Valley Catholic. But let's remember this third, this third thing, because Jesus and Satan go toe-to-toe -to -toe at the very beginning of his public ministry. And so that his public ministry should come to a close with Jesus proclaiming victory. There's a certain, you know, symmetry to all of that and understanding it. Uh, harder to make sense of it, and it's kind of the weakness of what the days of Noah have to do with it. But you could say that that's a reference back to being saved by water. And baptism is the great sacrament of Christianity. It's what brings us into divine life. It is true that the Eucharist is the summit and source of the Christian spiritual life. The church comes into existence to celebrate the Eucharist long before uh, Paul starts preaching or any of the documents of the New Testament are written. And so, um, I mean, if you just think about how Jesus said, the night before he dies, do this in memory of me. And those guys did that, um, you know, from, from that day on, from the resurrection on at least. Um, and so um, if you're going to go talk to the fallen angels, and this is the weakness of thinking about it like this, it says he went and preached the gospel to the dead. And, you know, angels don't really, they're not born, they don't die. They are created, which means they have a beginning and an end. But it's not like we think of uh, death. Um, and we do know that Jesus will judge the living and the dead. Um, and so to go back to those souls that existed before Jesus was even born, 
It's that question, well, if you never heard the preaching of Jesus, do you have a possibility of going to heaven? Well, according to 1 Peter, um, yeah, that's exactly what happens. You can't put a limit on the mercy of God. Having said that, does it mean that there's a, a hell? Well, we know that because Jesus told us there's a hell. And I like Peter Kreeft on this. He says, unless Jesus is just blowing smoke, he didn't say it like that, but I'd say it like that. Uh, why would he tell us about hell if it wasn't a real possibility and there weren't souls there um, in this place of eternal torment? Um, you know, he's got better things to do than to scare us with stuff that is never going to actually affect us. So hell's a real thing. And so to go and proclaim that, you know where that comes in? It comes in in Dante's Inferno. And that's had a huge impact on Christianity. And so in the, Dante's Divine Comedy has three parts. The Inferno, Hell, the Purgatorio, Purgatory, and then uh, the Paradiso, uh, about going through these different levels of heaven. And it's a very medieval way of understanding. It's still one of the greatest works of literature. Um, but uh, in Dante's Canto Four, and this would have been written in the early 14th century, I think it's the 14th century. Um, at verse uh, 42, I want to read a little bit of it because it is just kind of cool. Um, that um, the words he heard in the first level of hell, which is where lust is punished, and there's all he hears is sighs, not screams, just sadness because. Um, Love unfulfilled, this is what lust is. When uh, people are used, um, nothing can, uh, you can't really grow in a relationship with a machine. Maybe think of other people as machines. It's always gonna be an unfilling, fulfilling relationship. Um, that uh, we are made for one another in the communion of saints. This is how we Christians, even in the medieval area, would have looked at it. But uncommenting on the size that he hears in this first circle of, of uh, no, this is actually in limbo. Before you get to the first circle of hell, this is where the pagans are, uh, like Aristotle and Plato. Virgil is his guide. Um, the, there's size, by the way, in, in that part about the lustful. But in limbo, this is how uh, Dante uh, comments on it. The words I heard weighed heavy on my heart. To think that souls as virtuous as these Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, were suspended in limbo and forever. Tell me, my teacher, tell me, O master, he says to Virgil. I begin wishing to have confirmed by him the teachings of unerring Christian doctrine. Did any ever leave here through his merit or with another's help and go to bliss? And he who understood my hidden question answered, quote from Nero, I was a novice in this place. So uh, Virgil died about the time of Jesus. I was a novice in this place when I saw a mighty Lord descend to us who wore the sign of victory as his crown. He took from us the shade of our first parent, of Abel his good son, of Noah too, and of obedient Moses who made the laws, Abram the patriarch, David the king, Israel with his father and his children, with Rachel whom he worked so hard to win, and many more he chose for blessedness. And you should know before these souls were taken, no human soul had ever reached salvation. And so there in the 14th century, the idea that people like Aristotle and Socrates would be left behind, but all the, the people of the Old Testament that lived virtuous lives would be saved. So 
Um, that would be a very medieval way of looking at it. Maybe true. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, the Second Vatican Council would think God's mercy is greater than that for those just like the Aristotle and Socrates that wouldn't have uh, even heard of Judaism probably. Um, God isn't, you know, God isn't play games. So here's how it came to us in the creeds. And you may remember this. There's the, Apostle, the Apostles, the Athanasian, and the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed, which is the one we say at Mass, really comes together over a period of four centuries. And in parts of the Christian world, other creeds were used until the Nicene Creed basically took over liturgy. And so one of the first from the fourth or the fifth century um, talks about Jesus crucified and died and then says, and you may remember this, descended into hell, rose again from the dead on the third day. And so that's the part about going into Hades among the dead. So the Apostles' Creed would have taken the position that Jesus preached to all the souls of the dead. The Athanasian Creed, because St. Athanasius was very concerned about the Trinity, and both of these may be from southern France, Gaul, it would have been known in the time. Uh, here's what the Athanasian Creed would talk about the souls in prison. Um, Jesus died, he suffered for our salvation, descended into hell, rose again the third day from the dead. He ascended to heaven and he sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. Now, think that's from the, probably the oldest version we have of that creed is from the 8th century, although it may date back to the 6th century, a little after the Apostles' Creed. But here's the Nicene Creed, as we say it at Mass. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So the whole idea of going down to the realm of the dead disappears in the Nicene Creed. But we talk about it when we read 1 Peter on the first Sunday of Lent. And so why choose that reading? Um, and I recognize not a lot of clarity there. Uh, in terms of how the church looks at it, because um, Jesus didn't explain it, and the early church refers to it, and it's just one of those mysteries that we have as Christians. I just think it's one of the weird things in the Bible that's worth thinking about, uh, what Jesus did those three days in the grave. But let's talk about why it corresponds to what he did in his ministry. So do you remember that one interpretation about preaching to the souls in prison, about proclaiming victory uh, to over, over all the satanic forces? Well, I think this is one of the reasons why 1 Peter is chosen as the second reading uh, in, uh, in the first Sunday of Lent. Interestingly enough, the first reading is from the book of Genesis, and it's about Noah and his sons in the water. So clearly the, the church is focuses on these issues about Noah and his three sons being saved, God putting a rainbow up because it is his bow, his war bow, which he hangs in the clouds because he won't make war on us anymore. Instead, God comes to do battle on our behalf, not to punish us, but to fight for us. And this is the gospel of Mark, uh, starting at chapter 12 in the, first, in the first chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 12. 
The Spirit, this is after his baptism, drove Jesus out into the desert, and he remained in the desert for 40 days, tempted by Satan. He was among wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. And after John had been arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. This is the time of fulfillment. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, which is exactly what we said, if you remember, at Ash Wednesday. But it's a reference to Jesus again and Satan, a spirit in prison. And so what does it mean that we start out Lent this way? So this is the thing, is the spirit refers to the uncreated spirit of God, which you and I received at our confirmation. And it is the love of God that drives him into the wilderness where he goes for 40 days to do battle. And the reference to Noah in Genesis in the first reading was, 40 days is a time of cleansing. It's Jesus proves himself, like warriors prove himself, like Israel was 40 years in the desert. This number is a, a referent to cleansing. And then he's tempted by Satan. Uh, and if you remember in Matthew, the temptations are uh, to... Um, you misuse his power to, sell, to, to solve his carnal needs, to feed, um, misuse, to lust after power, uh, and then to levitate in front of everybody so everybody understands who he is and everybody will just be overawed by his power. But um, there's a reason why in all four Gospels Jesus is crucified, because God is love. And that is what he comes to, re to, um, to reveal. So here's this reading from 1 Mark, and I'm going to parse it apart briefly so you get the drift. Adam and Jesus, this is the dichotomy. The old Adam, remember he was with the beasts in the garden? When Jesus comes out in the desert, it says he's with the beasts in the desert. And old Adam is tempted by the servant. The new Adam, Jesus, is tempted by Satan, the serpent, Old Adam fails the test and eats the, eats the fruit. Jesus passes the test. It's about recreation. Uh, it's this victory over Satan. And that's what's being proclaimed at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. And so ancient Jewish tradition is ministering angels served Adam, but something greater than Adam there. And so here is Jesus' message. Repent, change how you think, and believe in the gospel. So this Lent... How do you live all of this? This is what I, I'd ask you to think about. You're all baptized. And now you're in this wilderness. People complain so much about the world. And it is a place of temptation. So you are following Jesus who went before you into these very same challenges. So think about how he deals it when you deal with these carnal forces out there. How did he deal with these things when he was tempted? And so, how is your faith faring, passing or failing the test? Lent is a great time for fasting, prayer, and almsgiving, and for penance services. It's a good time for all of us to prepare to confess our weakness before God, because we're saved through as if through water and through fire, um, because our Savior leads us that way. So I hope you found this interesting. I think all this, the weird stuff in scripture is very interesting. Because we think one way, people two millennia ago thought something like that, but slightly different, and we can learn from them. So God bless you. I hope you have a wonderful and holy Lent. <laughs>